What's up, Dialed fam? Happy Monday, and welcome to episode 131 of the Dialed Health Podcast. My name is Derek Thiel. I'm the owner and head coach here at dialedhealth.com. And this week, we have a repost episode for you, which happens to be my favorite episode of all time. It's the interview I did last year with Nielsen Palace from Education First. We talk about him winning his first one-day classic, what the behind-the-scenes are like at the Tour de France. So this is the schedule, the bus, what's happening before, after, and in between the stages. And we also talk about his fifth place finish last year at the World Championships. Now, the coolest thing about this episode for me is that Nielsen is from my hometown, and I've had the opportunity to ride with him a handful of times, and he's a great dude. I love following his career, especially since he's on the rise, and he's bringing a crop of very strong Americans up with him to the top. So I have utmost respect for what he's doing. I'm honored to know him as a friend and to be able to learn from him on episodes like this podcast. So hopefully you can take away everything that we poured into it. So hopefully you can take away a lot of the gold nuggets that he shares in regards to racing and training. And I also hope you love some of the insight he gives behind the scenes. And before we dive into this episode, I want to ask you to please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast if you are not already. Share this episode with a friend and please leave us a five-star review and rating. You know, those actually go a long way because I don't know if you've noticed, but on podcasts, there's not really a way to see how popular shows are besides their rating and review. You look at if they have a good rating or not, and then you look at how many ratings that they have. And that gives you a good idea of how popular the show is. At least that's what I do. So racking up the ratings and reviews, especially five stars, make a huge difference. And I want to give a shout out to our most recent rating and review from Just Russell. He left five stars and said, best podcast I've found. Bonus that's based around cycling. Derek is a genuine dude and makes this podcast sound like you're having a conversation with a buddy. I look forward to these every Monday morning. Stokey's back at it. I'm stoked I'm back at it too, Russell. Thanks for the kind words and thank you for everybody listening to the show. I hope you enjoy it. And we'll be back next week with a fresh episode. All right, Nielsen, I have to set the stage a little bit. You're on a 100-mile bike ride, give or take, close to 10K of climbing. At the highest point of elevation, you stop and get this waffle sandwich that has been tormenting me since I've seen it. You posted a photo of it, and not only did you post a photo of it, but you were riding with this monster waffle, sausage, egg, (laughs) cheese sandwich. And I have a couple questions. First off, I need to know where you got it. Secondly, did you really eat that while you were riding? (laughs) I did eat it while I was riding. It was, so I was doing a a loop up into Georgetown, which is like the fun mountain loop. If for anyone living in the Sacramento area, like you probably have ridden this loop before, but I was climbing up Marshall Road. So I was going like counterclockwise Georgetown loop. And there's a town called Garden Valley that is just below Georgetown. And as you're Exiting Garden Valley on Marshall Road, there's this gas station general store called Tom's Sierra Energy. And I think I've stopped there for like a like water once, but I was just like pretty hungry. I hadn't really eaten too much. It was like, I think it was like three hours in at this point. And I was like really needing some mid-ride pick-me-up because it was cold up there too. There was like snow on the side of the road and, you know, I just needed some uh, mental mental reassurance and they have like a little hot bar in the gas station and something in the hot bar was labeled W B. And I was like, Hey, what's, what's that? I'd, I'd been moseying around the store for a little while trying to find a perfect snack. And then I saw like they had a hot bar. I was like, yeah, something hot sounds really great. And the clerk told me that it was a a waffle breakfast sandwich. I was like, wow. 
I, ha- I don't think I've ever seen one of those at a gas station. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm just going to give it a try. Like <laughs> I've had burritos on rides before. Like I never shy away from slightly unique ride food. So <laughs> yeah, I, I bought it and I just, I kept going cause I was like a bit on a time crunch. So I just wanted to keep, keep things rolling. And I opened it up when I was riding. And as soon as I opened it up and saw what it really was, I was just like, you know, my mind was blown. I was like, Oh my gosh, this thing looks great. Yeah. Um, and it just got better when I bit into it. The thing was delicious. <laughs> and it was like, it was just from a gas station. But like, I think, I don't know who makes it because it was like, I've never seen something like that at a gas station before. It was like a sweet waffle bun, like that mm-hmm. was toasted with melted cheese and egg and sausage inside of it. And <laughs> I was pretty hungry at this point. So like, it didn't really give my stomach a heavy feeling or anything like that. I just did it as I was climbing up Marshall Road or just ate it as yeah. I was climbing up Marshall Road. Just kind of ate it slowly, but it was so good. Like definitely a hidden gem up there in the mountains. <laughs> I'm shocked that you got that from a gas station because it looked beautiful. It literally, it looked like if you staged a waffle sandwich and you wanted the perfect amount of yeah. egg and cheese and all of that, that's what it would look like. So the fact that you just unwrapped it yeah. mid-ride, it was from a gas station, I'm amazed. And I also yeah. think it's rad that <laughs> you went in with the goal to get a heartier food like that because I know that people struggle so much with their nutrition when they're riding and they tend to overthink things a lot. And sometimes they won't go with what just sounds really good. And although you do have to be smart to an extent, like if you are just going to try and eat a rack of ribs because that sounds good on a ride, it's it's probably not going to help you a ton. But to have more of a balanced meal with a lot of fat and protein and and carbs in it as well, something that's a little more balanced and it's warm, like you said, it just hit the spot. That not only is the nutrition you probably need, but it's that motivation boost. You know what I mean? Because I'm sure on that big descent at the top of Marshall, which I know that route. So you have a huge downhill afterward. You probably felt like a champ. You felt all, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I I was sort of between efforts at the time too. I had to do like 15, 20 minute tempo slash threshold efforts throughout that ride. And I knew it was going to be a while before I started my next one because my next one was going to be up Old Forest Hill Road, which is probably an hour from there. So I knew like I had a bit of time for it to like sit in my stomach. I knew I'd like at that point in the ride, like I, I feel like it's never a great idea to go like six hours without or like seven, eight hours without having any like protein at all. So I mm-hmm. tend to look for something like that's a bit more balanced around the midpoint of my rides just to give my body some real food sometimes and to like just make it feel like it's eating something normal as opposed to like yeah. cliff bars for six hours. <laughs> I'm with you. And in my opinion, I think protein's very underrated for cyclists. It seems like to me, people are always trying to do like they're trying to always come up with a reason why they're eating the bare minimum amount of protein or they won't put any of that in their system while riding. Same thing with fiber. And I understand it's it's more water that has to be pulled into your gut to digest. It sits in there longer. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense in regards to performance. But when you are gone for that long, there's a point where you have to feel satiated and you have to get almost like a coating around your stomach or you can start to feel sick. And then in my opinion, having a little bit of protein makes me feel like I can recover faster toward the end of the ride. I don't feel like a shriveled up catabolic noodle after it. So is there, is there a point for you? Is it that three hour mark? Like if you know, you have a couple more hours, you want to go for more of a hearty, uh, maybe hearty is not the right word, but more of a balanced meal. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Like even I did almost the same loop a few days later, uh, actually just the other day. And 
I ended up stopping in Georgetown this time. And I just, I had a breakfast burrito that I just munched on all the way back into Sacramento. Cause it was like, said like at that three hour point, you still have three hours to go, two hours to go. And I hate, I've, I've kind of stopped finishing rides feeling like shriveled up. (laughs) I've made it more of a point to make sure I'm keeping my energy stores topped up, even like towards the end of a ride. I'm not finishing like starving like very often anymore. Cause I feel like I just recover day to day much better like that. Um, and it's also just like really a nice mental boost. If you can have like a real, like, yeah, a burrito <laughs> breakfast, burrito or yeah. breakfast sandwich, like some real food, um, while you're out there, then it's been nice. It's such a good lesson for people listening. I mean, it's not about just making it home. You want to ride your strongest all the way through through your ride and get the most of whatever yeah. intervals you are doing, or even if it's an endurance ride or a recovery ride, for you to make sure that you are topped off on nutrition and you don't walk in the door and start immediately going to the fridge hoping you'll find a Coke. Or yeah. I've actually walked in and drank maple syrup out of a jar before because I was so bummed. Oh my God. And <laughs> <No>. so, <laughs> yeah. And so I've also uh, made it a priority to make sure I don't end rides that way. And it feels weird sometimes when you have. Let's just say, you know, you're 15 minutes from home, but you pull a gel out and Mm -hmm. slam it. But I found that even doing that makes the recovery process so much better. And it's just mentally, you're not just barely making it that last mile. You're coming home strong. You're walking in the door and you're not ravenous. And I think long-term for your day-to-day ride and to feel motivated for riding, that's a way better approach. So I love that advice. I didn't even plan on talking about nutrition that deep, but (laughs) some good lessons for people. Yeah. I think your family will appreciate you uh, coming back home a bit more temperate than ravenous. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Do it for the family. Like, yeah, <laughs> just be in a better mood for them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we got to get into some of the highlights from your season, because even though I had been following it as your friend, you're from my hometown. And so there's so many reasons I've been excited to see, like, just kind of pay attention to your season. But we got to start out with probably one of the biggest highlights. It definitely one of the biggest highlights of the year. And I'm curious if it is your number one highlight or not, because you did a lot, but you won a classic race, San Sebastian. It's a one day race, first pro win. That was freaking rad. And I want to talk about the sprint at the end of the race. The first thing. So can I, can I ask, would you, do you think that's like your, your biggest highlight from the year? Because we're going to get into world champs next, but that was also your, your result of world champs was insane. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, both of those events are pretty, pretty close. in uh, in like, like in terms of the best highlight, but I think you can't beat a win. So <laughs> I think uh, yeah, you're right. Sebastian is definitely my top. <laughs> yeah, oh, dude, I can't imagine. And literally watching the ending sprint was unreal. And basically, the whole race was kind of carnage. It ended up raining. And we're not going to do a full race recap. But it came down to you and Mikel Honore from Takunik. And then uh, Mate Mahoric from Bahrain Victorious. By the way, he won two stages of the Tour de France this year. And so that's uh, basically explains like what level <laughs> Nielsen was going up against. You're basically in this final three. You're dodging crashes. You're riding super like it, it seemed you were well within control. And going into that final sprint, mm-hmm. it seems like Mikel kind of got dumped off early on. And then mm-hmm. it was basically you 
and Matei Mahorik. And watching you mm-hmm. sprint for the line, it's one of those clips that makes you just feel like you could run through a brick wall. I feel like anybody watching that <laughs> just gets, like, I got so fired up. Uh, but the thing that really surprised me about it was your body position. And I wanted to ask you about this because I'm obsessed with movement, obviously, with what I do with strength training. But your body position mm-hmm. was like the most rock solid display of efficiency. Your upper body did not move <laughs> in this sprint. Yeah. And the bike remained almost completely upright. Was that intentional? Mm-hmm. I mean, have you developed that over time? Did you watch that back and also think the same thing you know what i'm talking about right yeah i mean it's funny i feel like i 100 percent see what you're saying with like this like yeah the solid like form that i had and stuff but at the same time i saw that video and just saw everything that i needed to do differently because everything was like great in terms of like how solid i was like like how the bike was kept upright but then my body was also really high up like my head was really high um like obviously when i threw my bike my body lowered but i i I looked back and I was like, I feel like I should have been like more aerodynamic, like kept my body lower. But it is true that like everything was super efficient and super solid. I'm yeah, typically I'm just not a sprinter. So I have like, that isn't just like the way I sprint. I think it's just what the way I've developed and the way it feels strong and powerful to me. So a little more about this race before we move on to some questions about the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. I was doing my research and I had your winning article on cycling tips, but there was also another article about, it was called the Garmin that helped you win. Yeah. And this was an awesome quote that you had. And there was a video on this article that showed one of the, I, I don't want to say it was one of the last corners, but toward the end of the race, mm-hmm. it was you and a group of five, I believe, and two of the guys went down, or maybe it was four and two of the guys went down and they basically didn't break enough for a corner. It was wet. Mm-hmm. And they both tucked the front, one went into a curb, you were in the back and smoothly pulled around. And your quote mm-hmm. from it was that you said, I was watching my map on my garment. I yeah. think the guys who were in front of me were maybe too focused on the situation of the race and not so much the road. I could see it was a sharp corner coming up that they ended up crashing in. In the end, I was just happy to keep upright and stay fresh as possible for the end. And first off, the fact that you were actually looking at the map on your Garmin head unit in the heat of the race and paying that much attention, I thought was impressive. But also, this is just the most legendary sponsor plug of all time. So kudos <laughs> on both of those things. Yeah. But you were really looking at the course map just to make sure you didn't overcook turns? Yeah. So we actually have GPX files downloaded on our Garmin on our computers for every stage of any race that we do. Our team has a an app called Velo Viewer with every race of the year, with every stage of the, every race. So you can put the the course map on your computer and see and basically have it route you and show you like how long it is to finish, how long every climb is, like little course points that'll pop up and tell you like in two and a half K, there's going to be a sharp left-hand turn followed by a three K climb. So little things like that'll be constantly popping up on our computer screen. And that's all done by the staff on EF on, on a lot of teams. They do this, but they just put that in there so that athletes can have more information especially in races where they haven't been able to pre-ride anything. But in my case, in San Sebastian, I was, I'm, I'm constantly peeking at the map because I have it set to like a, a 1K or 500 meter zoom level just so I can see the corners just as I peek down every now and then. I'm not like staring at my screen, but I'm, I'm constantly like glancing at it so that I can see like, okay, that corner looks like it's going to be, you know, a, like a hairpin. This corner looks like I don't need brakes. So like I can have a better gauge of what's coming. And that's basically what happened there. I don't think Mikkel or uh, Mate were looking at, or didn't, they weren't, I don't think they were glancing at their maps at all. 
I think they were just focused on, yeah, watching everyone else and thinking about the race and whatever. And I'm also doing that. Like you have to keep an eye on the guys around you and feel what's happening in the race. But part of racing is also just knowing the course. And if you know the course better than everyone else, then you would have an advantage. So in that case, it definitely helped me to know how, how like what the corners were like coming up because it was one of the final final corners of the race and it made a big difference. That's so awesome. It just reminds me too that road racing, as much as it is about your fitness, that amount of actual strategy that goes into it and just the race experience is is pretty insane. I mean, that's one of those things I wouldn't have thought about, but knowing the terrain, even climbs and how to pace yourself, knowing how mm-hmm. long a climb is or how steep a gradient is. You yeah. know, I ride so many of the same roads, but I don't even realize how much I count on my knowledge of the terrain. In fact, right. I did yeah. a Georgetown ride recently on a similar loop Mm -hmm. that we talked about earlier and I got destroyed because I mean, (laughs) I was going, I I just wanted to go as hard as I can and blow myself up, but I didn't really understand how to hold my pace, even up Marshall, like like the climb you were talking about that you you were eating your waffle sandwich on. Now (laughs) I need to go make sure I beat you while you were eating your waffle sandwich, because if I didn't, it's all over. Oh no! Yeah, you'll you'll crush my time when I was eating that sandwich. <laughs> so let's get into the Tour de France. I have some random questions about the tour. All right. Before we get into it, do you mind giving us a rundown on the daily schedule that you go through at the Tour de France? Like, what does one full day of racing look like? Yeah. All right. Well, typically the team sends out a schedule the night before. So just after dinner time or at dinner time, the day before, they'll send a whole day planning that'll tell you what time you have to come down for breakfast, what time you have to put your suitcases out because we're moving hotels almost every day. So there's like a bag you keep with you with all your cycling stuff. And then there's suitcase that gets moved from hotel room to hotel room for you that you just set out in front of your door every day. And it just ends up in the new hotel the next day. A staff member just comes and picks it up and takes it to the next hotel. But yeah, they'll get a day planning. You'll get breakfast time. You'll get suitcase time. You'll get what time you leave, how long the transfer is to the race. You always get to the race about an hour and a half before the start. So typically we eat breakfast around three hours before the start. Then we, because during Tour de France, we're eating a lot of food. Like we're going through a lot of calories. So you need to give your body time to digest that massive, like 1200, 1300 calorie meal in the morning. And then, yeah, we have our, our race meeting on the team bus when we get to the start. And then after the race meeting, we get changed. There's a little espresso machine on the bus that will typically have another cup of coffee before having to... That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. (laughs) Before we have to go and sign in. Because every morning, you have to go and tell the race that you're still competing. So you go and sign a piece of paper that says you're still in the race. Like, you didn't get sick. You're not pulling out. You're continuing. And then you come back to the team bus. Some guys have another coffee. Some guys just hang out, just fill their pockets up with, with ride food and... Yeah, then you about five, five, ten minutes before the start, you go out, grab your bike. The mechanics always have them just set up on a bike rack, fresh and cleaned and ready to go. They wash your bikes for you every night after every stage. And so they're like a brand new bike every morning, which is great. And yeah, then you get to the start race for however long that stage is. As soon as you finish. Can I ask what's a typical start time for your breakfast? You have a 12, 1300 calorie meal three hours before you get to the race or three hours before the race start? Three hours before the race start. So we'll typically eat breakfast. Okay. And then a lot of guys will just like bring their backpacks down to breakfast and then just walk onto the bus from the breakfast table. Okay. And then you show up to the event, you do your team meeting, you have your espresso, 
sign into mm-hmm. the race, change. I got to ask also, th- there must be a no pooping on the bus, no PRDs on the race bus policy, because I can't imagine what espresso and nervous stomachs would do for three weeks of a race bus. Typically, like if you've done it right, you have put yourself on a schedule that you don't have to do that on the bus. You can take care of that in the hotel before you leave in the morning. Yeah. But occasionally it does happen and it's unfortunate, but it does happen sometimes. So then so then you get to the line finally to start. And what what time is that normally? Is it a set time every day? Does it change throughout the tour? It'll change slightly, but I'd say like a pretty standard start time is like eleven thirty or noon. Yeah. Yeah. That okay, way that right when we're, that way when All we're right. finishing the stage, it's like good T V time around when people get off work. Oh, cool. And they base that off of American viewing or is it mostly off of European viewing? Because America, it's super early. It's mostly off of European viewership, but it also fits with American viewership normally because at that point, Americans would be waking up and they can watch it before, right? Like right before work or something in the States. Yeah, it does work out pretty well that way. Okay, cool. And then most stages are really, you know, between four and six hours for the most part, right? Yeah, that's pretty typical, I'd say. Except for a time trial. Those days are pretty short. Oh, true. Yeah. So then you finish up most days besides time trials, I guess, more so around, let's just say like 4 p.m., 5 p.m. It seems like you roll up and you get nutrition right after the, like as soon as you cross the finish line. So what does that process look like? Like you finish your stage and then what do you do? Yeah. So typically, I mean, we're trying to eat as much as we can during the race so that we're not super depleted when we finish. But as soon as we cross the line, there's a staff member there waiting for all the athletes with, actually it's like cherry juice has become a really popular finish drink for like the antioxidants and just like kind of tart, which is nice at the end of a race. I mean, it used to always yeah, be like anti-inflammatory too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It used to be like just Coke or Fanta and water, but now they've started to replace the sodas with cherry juice. <laughs> and... That's just kind of something to sip on while you coast back to the team bus. And then once you get to the team bus, there's typically a meal waiting for you there that the bus driver has prepared or that like the chef has prepared and put on the bus. And most teams nowadays have a, have a team chef that make all of the meals for them during the races and travels with like their own kitchen truck. But yeah, they'll have a meal on the bus, recovery drink waiting for you there. You'll typically just eat the, eat the, recovery meal. It's essentially lunch at 530. <laughs> and then kind of eat that on your way back to the hotel. Get to the hotel around say six is pretty standard. Then you go and you get a massage. There's about say there's eight athletes and four swaneers. So four four people to give massages to eight riders. So each massage therapist takes two athletes. And as soon as the last massage finishes, which is typically, you know, get an hour massage after the after every day. So it's like two hours from when you get back to the hotel, then we have dinner, get our, get our schedule for the next day at dinner, sometimes play a a round of Uno or something with the guys and then (laughs) head back to bed and do it again the next day. Man, it sounds like it could be an incredible vacation for an app, like for a cyclist that's not competing. Is there some kind of event that you can go sign up for where you get this sort of, I mean, I'm sure you've even thought about it, but the same schedule without the actual pressure of racing would be pretty legendary as far as just a, a, you know, weekend of riding goes. Yeah. You can sign up for like Tour de France course, like tours. I, I I don't know exactly what they're called, but they're basically like completely all-inclusive like trips that you pay for but it's like a bike tour that follows the tour de france there's like tons of different 
companies that'll do this, but it's like a bike tour that follows the Tour de France or that does the course before we race it. And they plan your hotels, they have staff for you. And like, it's just like what you said. Yeah, you're doing the same courses. And <laughs> they, oh, that's support, so cool. they, they plan out <laughs> the meals. They, yeah, it, it's out there. <laughs> Okay. It's definitely on my bucket list now for sure. And you know, on one hand, it sounds sort of glamorous, but I don't think it should undermine really the reality of what you guys are doing because the amount of miles you're putting in daily, the stress you're putting on your body, the stress mentally of performance and what you're having to deal with, the last minute adjustments, things you don't account for, the full on mountain stages in the rain. I mean, all of these things are so gnarly, but I was curious. So because you have that extra level of treatment, you're not taking care of your own bike or prepping your own meals, uh, you have the massage. Do you feel like there are any times in the tour where it almost feels easier because of that extra care and treatment than maybe just a hard training block when you don't have that additional support you know what i mean by that yeah totally i yeah i mean there's no way i could train the way we race at the tour just because we don't have that extra support like we don't have to cook for ourselves we don't have to plan anything we don't have to clean any of our equipment our equipment's always perfect everything is just taken care of for us which is why you know if you look at the tour de france and the amount of like training stress you're putting your body under every if you did that in like training yourself just a training camp without any support everyone would tell you you're overtraining. but mm. a lot of guys come out of the tour and they're better than they've ever been because they had that constant like support to recover every day to make sure their nutrition was always perfect like we travel with a, yeah. a team chef and team nutritionists and coaches who all are like tracking everything that we do and that's i mean san sebastian was only a week after the tour and it was the strongest I've, I've ever been but if i tried wow. to train like we raced in the tour i would probably run myself into the ground trying to keep up with like the cooking and clean like maintaining my bike and planning routes all that Man, that's a great point. So you're basically just saying there's no way that you could replicate the work that you put in in the Tour de France on your own. It just it wouldn't be possible. Yeah, I mean, unless you had, unless you're just like in one place with like people that cooked for you and did your laundry, uh, cleaned your bike, like <laughs> everything. Right. Like we don't even right. have to think about stopping to refill water. You know, you just you get it on the go. You never stop for anything. Yeah, that's a good point. Wow, that's a really that's really cool. It honestly makes it even more. I don't know if exclusive is the right word, but to think that you could put that level of stress on your body in a way that can't be replicated, really, you have to be almost at the tour or some type of stage race like this. I think that's that's pretty freaking cool, and it's also pretty freaking pro, uh, which I do love it. And my dad has been a fan of the sport really for as long as I can remember, and he has made comment to me that really stuck with me. And I wanted to ask, he had said just through interviews or something that he watched, a lot of writers, uh, and I'm quoting someone through my dad. So this is like telephone right now, but he had said something about writers going through the tour and having that level of stress, elevating their fitness to a level they've never experienced before, especially for a first tour or something like that. Do you think that's true? Um, you did just say you came out of it stronger than ever, but do you think there's a point where once you go through a tour, you're now at an, even another level of race fitness that you just couldn't accomplish without that? Like yeah, it changes you as a rider, essentially? It does. I think it definitely does. Yeah. I mean, after my first grand tour, I did the Vuel I raced the Vuelta. That was my first grand tour in 2019. And that winter, I could already feel like my body was different. Like after I took an off season break, like restarted training in the first two weeks of training, I could already feel like, whoa, this is, this is different. 
Yeah. What do you mean by different? Your just ability to maybe hold, is it like holding just tempo for longer? Is it just higher, you know, threshold numbers? I mean, Mm -hmm. is there something in particular where you're like, you really noticed it or was it just all around (laughs) fitness is just on another (laughs) level? Uh, It just, it just felt a lot more natural to be riding again after taking time off. Like in the past, Mm. like getting back on my bike after taking time off, like my body feels weird on the bike. It doesn't feel like I feel like I need to adjust things all the time. Like I'm bonking really early in training. Like after two hours, I already feel like I need to eat a huge meal. But then the first winter training again, after a grand tour, I feel like endurance was still there. Like I just, after taking three, four weeks off. Yeah. I felt like my endurance never really went away. And as soon as I got on, I felt I felt good again. I didn't feel like I needed as much time to to build fitness. It felt like built fitness a lot faster. Little things, you just feel oh, that's cool. More like natural on your bike. That's that's really cool. You know, the body's ability to adapt it is remarkable, and mm-hmm. it almost makes me think that you put such a high level of strain doing this repetitive motion, this repetitive thing that your body just probably went to another level adaptation to accommodate for it to where you almost feel more natural doing that thing now. And that's really cool. I'm happy you actually elaborated on that. So I wanted to ask a couple more things about the daily schedule. You mentioned that Mm -hmm. in the tour, is it the night before you guys get your briefing from the team managers on what you're going to do the next day? Was it the night before the morning? You get like the night before you get the day planning, like the schedule of the day, not necessarily what you're going to do in the race, but the timing of like breakfast and leaving and whatever. Okay. So you get the day planning. And then when you show up to the race and you have your meeting on the team bus with Mm -hmm. the espressos and hopefully no poop smell on the team bus, that's (laughs) when they're giving you your actual strategy for the stage. Yes. Yeah. Typically you kind of have an idea, like based on what you think your role is coming into the tour and if it's a mountain stage or a sprint stage or like mixed day. Um, but yeah, in terms of like what each athlete is specifically tasked to do during that stage, you'll find that out like on the team bus, like an hour before the start. Okay. So then I'm sure they take into account, obviously your guys' physical capabilities. They know you as riders, they know where your Mm. strong points are, your weak points are. And I'm sure once the tour actual course map comes out, uh, well before the race actually starts, they start putting people in place for what they can do where just based off of the the normalcy of their riding style. But Mm -hmm. so much can change in regards to recovery. And I was kind of curious if you, let's just say, have a bad whoop score or all of a sudden you just (laughs) don't feel good one day. uh, Do Will they change the plan for that? Like, do they at any point look around and just ask you guys how the heck you're doing? Do they log into your whoop data and just look at it and maybe say, oh, shoot, Nielsen's super recovered today, even more than expected. He can maybe put in a harder effort or shoot, maybe you didn't recover as much as we had hoped. We're going to change this plan. Is that something they take into account? To some degree, yes. But for the most part, they try to stick to the plan as much as possible. And then only if things start to go sideways during the race, will they like tell us on the radio, like, okay, Sergio, you need to take over for Nielsen because he's on a bad day. But things can change during the day. And we're also talking amongst each other during the race. Like maybe if it's in the moment, if we're like pulling on a climb or somebody's meant to be opening the race up, like attacking with the team in the wheel, stuff like that can also just change on the fly depending on how guys are feeling we'll say like no like i'm like in the moment if you don't have time to even talk to your director you'll just be you know pulling and you'll say no like i've only got 500 meters left in me or i've only got 1k left in me and then you'll just say like you're gonna have to take over sooner than you thought originally but that's just how it goes sometimes 
Oh, that's cool. So it's even more on the fly and they're just trying to stick to yeah. the plan. That's, that's cool to know. So then you go through your race, changes happen based on whatever the race outcome is, even while it's happening. Now you have your massage, uh, you roll through the schedule. Obviously this happens for weeks on at a time. Is there, I'm, I'm curious, a recovery modality that has had the most impact on you or something that you always make sure that you do? Like I'm always uh, recommending for people to elevate their legs. I think yeah. it's the easiest thing you can do that makes an impact on how you feel. And mm -hmm. your legs just feel a little bit lighter after you put them up even for 10 minutes. And it's just, yeah. it's free, it's easy, it's accessible. And yeah. I think it's a great recovery modality for people to implement. So um, obviously mm -hmm. you, you are doing those massages and stuff. Is there anything else that you do throughout something like the tour or even through your normal training that is your favorite or your go-to? I've got like a, one of those massage guns that I use every now and then. Honestly, the, the thing that makes the biggest difference in a grand tour is just eating and sleeping. Like if you can do a lot of both of those things, <laughs> yeah. everything else is so minuscule compared to that. Like the biggest thing is just making sure you're eating well, not losing weight, also not gaining too much weight. It's like, that's actually a difficult balance in the tour. But yeah, I mean, because so, I mean, everybody's body just reacts differently, too, because some guys will just their bodies will hold on to a lot of water because they're putting their bodies under so much stress that their body's not gaining any fat, but they're gaining a lot of weight because like there's they're just holding water weight. And that's yeah. something that you work out with your nutritionists. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a tough balance. It's a tough thing to say. I mean, I'm definitely a big fan of putting my legs up like our our chairs on the team bus. Like they all have a, a leg rest that flips up and you can put your legs up. So everyone has their own seat and like a little outlet next to their seat and a little table. And then you can put your legs up as soon as the race is over and then just getting good food and hydrating. Hydration's big and sleeping as much as you can. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's awesome. So tour life, pretty dang legit. sounds like it changes you forever. Now let's get back to some one day race action because you've had success in both tours and one day races. Obviously we already covered San Sebastian and I had to ask, I mean, you said earlier, you can't beat a win, which I agree with, but dude, you got fifth place at world champs. I'm not trying to sound like a complete fanboy, but I can't help it, man. You're up there sprinting on the Flanders course, cobbles, climbs. And it's funny because I'm still relatively new to road cycling culture. Like obviously mm -hmm. my whole history is in gravity mountain bike racing, but there are already these things that have made a huge impact on me. And when you're in a breakaway group of five with the current world champ, Philippe, I mean, dude, that's just cool. It's just rad. Yeah. As a cycling fan, <laughs> when I watched that, and I was like, oh my gosh, dude, Nielsen's right there. It was, <laughs> it was legendary. So, I mean, I got to ask, like, how heavy of a feeling is it to come up to the world champs line? Let's just say, you know, you're a you know, few hundred meters out. You're in the breakaway sprint group. You're looking around. It's the world's best. It's the world champs. Was there a moment for you, like in that position where you kind of realized how, how gnarly that actually was? Were you just hanging on for dear life? I mean, how was that whole how was that whole final pole of worlds? Yeah, let's start with that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was an amazing race. I feel like the tactics that we, you know, TJ Van Gardren, it was his first like really solo directing race. He just retired this year and became director. I was teammates with him this year and he was the director for us at World Championships. And he put, I got to give him props, like he put together an incredible team plan of telling us which guys needed to attack where uh, to give us the most opportunities at trying to win because we basically went into that race like not saying like all right let's just like get through this thing like try to get a good placing it was really like all right how are we going to win this thing like we don't have a favorite we 
like don't really have a pure sprinter, but like we have some strong guys. So like we have to give ourselves every opportunity we can to like to win, not just to be like surviving, but we want to try to win. And I mean, that just like put us in a a great mindset before we even started the race. Mm -hmm. And we just like went into that. Everybody thinking like, I have to be dialed today to give myself an opportunity to win. Because essentially we had three or four guys on the team that could have all been in my position had like one of the plans worked out. It could have gone McNulty's way or could have gone Quinn Simmons way, but it ended up going my way, which I was really thankful for. And I was happy that I had good legs for it, but yeah, in the end, like we executed the team plan. Can you elaborate on what you mean by it going your way? I mean, what happened throughout the race that got to the point where you realized it's your opportunity and not those other guys? Were there Was there anything in particular? Well, we knew the race was going to open up early. There's always a group that tries to get away pretty far out, like 70, 80K to go in world championships. Like a group of not favorites, but super strong guys that are capable of doing that. And, you know, that was, Brandon's role was to go with the first semi-serious move that was like going from further out. And he did a great job putting himself in that position. He got off the front with a group of like 25. I think it was a really big group that went over the, the first loop of the cobbled climb. And eventually just, it wasn't the right mix. So that group ended up coming back. And then I was able to just go with the next group straight away. That was that went away on the small circuit in Leuven, which was about 80k to go. So his group came back. I rolled with a group, and the group that I rolled with, just because of the nature of it being closer to the finish, and also it was like the second try at a move like that. It was just an even more dangerous move with stronger guys. Um, and mm-hmm. we also had the benefit of Remco Evanpool being in our group and just wanting to to drive the the heck out of it. <laughs> so yeah. he was taking a lot of the brunt of the work and essentially forcing our group away. Because he's also Belgian, so his teammates aren't going to chase. I mean, the the real favorites did get back up to us. But at that point, I had already gotten out of having to follow that initial jump from the guys like Al Philippe and Walt Venard. And yeah, like the, the first major selection, I was already ahead of. So it just put me in a great position for um, energy conservation purposes. Yeah, man, that's cool to know that you go into it for one, really with the mindset that you are going to win this thing. And I got to ask too, it's one thing to to say that. Did you really believe it though, too, coming into it that you could win it and that you were going for the win or that someone on your team was going to win? Is there that real belief? Because you know, there, there's a real difference. Well, I'll say it, it really helped having a great race at San Sebastian, having a few great races in Italy. Yeah. Where, you know, my teammate Michael Valgren had just come off of winning two races that I was able to play a vital role in, um, you know, a couple top tens for myself in those races where he won and just, you know, sort of riding for him there and feeling really strong. So I had a lot of confidence going in, which helped. But in the end, like, you never really know. Like, I actually didn't feel very good when I started the world championships. Like I never really felt good. Honestly, it was just like, it was a hard race, like the whole day. So I don't know if anybody was yeah. really feeling good because sometimes you're in a race and you're like, Oh, I've got diamonds in my legs or, you know, I, I can do anything. But I feel like this race was like so hard the whole time that I'm sure everyone was just kind of getting pulled along, trying to fight for position, like sprinting out of corners. It was a technical race. Yeah, it was definitely technical. And I want to ask you about the cobbles as well. But I I have to make the point that you winning San Sebastian and really winning, I think that's where the real belief 
comes from. It, it's shown over and over again when people win and they just keep repeat these wins after maybe never winning before. And that's, I think, the real difference of it, it's the mindset that you come into something being like, no, I really can win. I just won yeah. this. There's all this evidence, like you said, our teammates are doing it well. Like we can really do this. And to yeah. have that genuine belief is very different than that raw, raw, like, hey, you can do it. I believe in you. And it's tough because you have to break through that barrier and get to that point. And, and it takes a certain amount of that but it's crazy to to really feel that belief and i think that's awesome and it makes sense that you guys came into that day the way that you did and that you had the result that you had but you said it's a hard race and not only the intensity people punching it out of corners but you had a ton of cobbled climbs and i was curious mm -hmm. just some cobbles in general or just rough terrain are, are there any strategies that you do in particular to kind of mitigate how uncomfortable the, the cobbles are is it a lower cadence so you're not putting so much pressure on your sit bones is it more standing i mean is there anything in particular yeah definitely not a lot of standing because you want to try to keep the bike as like stable and not you don't want to let your bike bounce at all because that's where you start to lose energy okay feel really rough so staying in the saddle is always a bit more efficient over the cobbles but honestly everyone's just going all out on the cobbles like trying not to lose position because as soon as somebody puts their foot out or has to stop or has an issue everyone behind them is stopped so you don't want to get caught behind anyone so everybody every time we did cobble section it was just as hard as you could go even though you'd finish the climb exactly where you started everyone around you including yourself everyone's going as hard as they possibly can just to hold position and to like get the cobbles over with as fast as possible yeah so you're just saying you grit your teeth and get through it it's not yeah and you can't stand because you don't want your bike bouncing around. Got yeah. it. Even the, the guys that are winning Roubaix, they're very uncomfortable, but they just, they mash it out. <laughs> oh, dude, the photos from Roubaix this year were some of the most savage <laughs> things I think I've ever seen. Yeah, I'm glad I wasn't there. <laughs> oh my gosh, I bet. I mean, for the fans, it's everything you'd hope for for the racers. I can't imagine how terrifying that would be. You know, I've done downhill races in the past in the snow and in weird conditions, and it's super scary. But a couple minutes is a lot of being focused is a lot different than just the absolute pounding, relentless roads that these guys are on. Oh my gosh, that was nuts. So speaking of rough terrain, you did your first gravel race this year, which was Big Sugar I did. Uh, in Arkansas, right? Yeah, it was a great time. Yeah, I mean, what's up with the gravel scene? Are you Where does this fit in the Nielsen program? Honestly, I'm not really sure yet. I can say that I would really like to do another one, but I don't know when my next gravel race is coming. I have the gravel bike now. I've got the Cannondale Evo SE. Thing is sweet, by the way. I was so comfortable on that thing in that race. But yeah, I'm not really sure when the next one's coming, but I'd really like to do another one. It just has to fit with the, with the racing calendar. Yeah, absolutely. I know you did it kind of post-season. And I think it's cool that you're dipping your toe in the water with that too. And any type of different experience, I think that still supports your main goal of just being the best cyclist you can be is, is a win, especially when it fits in your schedule like that. And so now I want to talk about your your training a little bit more. So the, the racing highlights have been super fun. So first off, <laughs> thank you for going into that. Yeah. Um, there was a quote I saw from the EF training Instagram, and it was mm -hmm. a photo of you. And I want to read this quote because I loved what you said about your mindset in racing and really what's allowed you to step your game up in the last couple of years uh, and really bridge the gap to be one of the best cyclists in the world. So 
here's what you said. The step up I've made in the last few seasons is to just be smart with my training. In the past, I've run myself into the ground with low carb diets and double training days. There's a time and place for that, but it stresses you. Most of the time, results come from balanced approaches. For me, a 30 minute gym session, a balanced diet, and building solid base miles in training, that's what has made my training more fun, made me happier and better motivated. Combined, it's helped me go better on the bike. I gotta ask, well, first off, let me say, balance and consistency is without a doubt the most effective thing from a training standpoint. Even if you have to do a little bit less, not missing your sessions, showing up, getting done what you can long-term without a doubt has the most benefits on really every level. Mm -hmm. But you you mentioned gym sessions, so I gotta ask, what are you doing (laughs) for your gym sessions? Can you give me a, a brief little rundown? Yeah, I can actually tell you exactly. I can just read you my gym session that I do almost almost every time I go to the gym. <laughs> How frequently is that? Is it a couple of days a week? Yeah, so I'll start with five minutes of mobility warm-up with the foam roller and just like stretching a little bit. Then I'll hit four by 30 seconds of jump roping uh, to warm my body up. And then I'll do a few hip stability warm-ups, sort of like T-spine, like T-bends on one leg. And then like kind of side-to-side squats, like slowly for like a minute to warm things up. Do some med ball side chops, two by 15, just with like a eight-pound med ball. Then I'll do some more jump roping, do some goblet squat, split squat, uh, like reverse lunges, basically, with a kettlebell. Then I'll do a few sets of push-ups, a few kettlebell deadlifts, uh, some kettlebell rows, and then bear crawls back and forth across the gym. And that's it. You know what that sounds like to me? Dialed health core training. (laughs) It sounds just like a dialed health workout. So for that, I definitely approve. Free weights, mobility, core, some functional movement like the bear crawls, incredible. And it's really cool that you are doing that and you're open and honest about it because I think we're at the point now where no one is saying that strength training doesn't work, but there are styles of strength training that tend to have more negative effects than positive ones, aka someone just going to the gym and doing heavy barbell squats, heavy deadlifts, and all heavy lower body movements. And then two days later, they're wondering why they're still sore or have back pain on their next bike ride. And the reality is you just can't overload the leg volume that way. And if you don't have your whole body being worked in a session, you just never go, you're going to be forever sore and your rides are going to suck around your gym sessions. And then doing that consistently throughout the year is just almost a no-go. So how often do you switch that up, that program? Yeah. All right. So Typically, I'll do that same workout essentially for like three weeks, the exact same one for three weeks till my body gets used to it and I get comfortable in the gym. Um, but sometimes I'll just change things if I get, if I'm using a different gym, maybe one gym has something that looks fun. I'll just kind of do that instead of one other exercise. But honestly, like sometimes, like when I see you posting stuff on Instagram, I'm like, oh, I want to try that. So <laughs> I'll just like take something out and I'll do like one of your crazy dynamic kettlebell. I don't even know what to call them, but I've, but you post some wild stuff on Instagram that I really like to, to try to get into because I feel like it's a bit of a challenge too to get the right movement and get the fluidity down, which is kind of fun. Dude, that's awesome. And I had, you mentioned this to me when we rode recently. And I always have to tell people because although the Instagram workouts are quality, I mean, I don't compromise what I actually think is good training, but there's a point where you have to post stuff that's just crazy or it's going to be <laughs> more negative for your page than anything. So I think I figured out a way to post 
more movements that you would actually find in the programs traditionally that most people would actually do. But the fact that you're going for these kettlebell flows, by the way, that's what they're called, kettlebell flows. That gets me stoked uh, to hear that. And for everyone listening, you have a World Tour Pro, one of the best in the world, grabbing a kettlebell and trying some crazy lateral flows and snatch variations. And I will say, one thing I've realized in doing the more complex training, uh, there's all these barriers that you want to hit before trying it. You know, you're consistently doing squats and lunges and deadlifts and core work. So you've built up that base enough of movement to where when you go and mess around with a kettlebell and try these different flows, most likely you're going to stay safe. And also it's just fun. And then really you building those movement patterns and the coordination from it, there's a lot of mind muscle connection that's being developed and it's beneficial. I mean, when you go out on the bike, your ability to think through all the different processes that are happening, especially in mountain biking as well, or shoot on a rainy descent on the road, or you're looking at your Garmin and then you're looking back up and making sure the guys who crashed in front of you don't actually actually make you crash. Those are all things that get developed in the gym when you're doing more complex exercises. And I'm getting more and more confident uh, speaking that out because it is true. It's just very hard to quantify. There's so many things you do in the gym that it's like you don't have that tangible piece of evidence until someone experiences it. And they're like, oh, yeah, like that does connect. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I love that you're doing that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like no matter what you're doing, no matter what sport you're doing, you always should try to aim for being like a complete athlete in general, not just like a cyclist or a rower or a swimmer runner. Like you want to try to be as like durable and like adaptable as possible. So that's why like I'll run in the off season. Yeah. Do mess around in the gym. Like, yeah, not really shy away from, you know, doing a gravel race or going out and swimming laps in a pool or anything. I love that. And also I think anyone listening to should just enjoy the fact that you're doing something different on your bike. I can tell you that Riding my bike is my favorite thing to do, but my next favorite thing to do is strength workouts and particularly working with kettlebells. And it keeps things very fresh when you're doing them consistently. There are some days I can honestly say I'd rather do a strength workout than ride. And it doesn't mean I don't love riding as much as I normally do. It's just nice to keep it fresh. So that's another thing mentally. It's like, go do something that keeps you motivated to get back on your bike and excited and know that it has benefits that are going to support your riding. So it's it's a win-win. You know, you get to do something different. Yeah. You keep your your mental fresh. And then it actually, you got on the bike. And if you have the right strength training, you feel better. So it's a win-win. Yeah. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Richie Port for a few years was sponsored by Speedo because he swims so much. Like he's actually a Speedo sponsored athlete. And um, no yeah, he uses swimming as cross training. And not a lot of people would think that swimming helps cycling that much, but it's great for your lungs. It's a great like back strengthening workout. And, you know, he's one of the best cyclists in the world. So can't beat that. Right. Okay. Let's jump into some Instagram questions. Now I posted a question box on my story and it was so annoying. The box didn't work. You couldn't click on it like you're supposed to. So I thank everyone that tried it and actually followed up with a DM of their question because we ended up getting some awesome questions and you had to go through a second layer. So thanks for that. Uh, We're going to start out. uh, And by the way, Nielsen, let's try and do these in more of a rapid fire style. So let's keep the answers as short as possible. The first question is from at Jack Lee J3000 says, what one day race would you most like to win next year? I'm still, I'm still gold. <laughs> the fact that you had that already, yeah. <laughs> that gets me fired up. Okay. Next question at walmart.dave. He says, how often do you stay at race weight throughout the season? And how much do you let it sway other times of the year? This winter was my biggest swing. I jumped up about 
six or seven pounds, but during the season, my weight stays almost exactly the same, right at about 144, 143. Gotcha. I'm curious also though, is that intentional? Is it just you not stressing and knowing you'll put the hammer down when you want? Yeah, it's just, it's just living a healthy lifestyle and things tend to stay consistent, like square meals, healthy meals, and never killing yourself to like lose a ton of weight really fast. Love it. Okay, next question is from at Junior Vaden. Uh, favorite non-cycling sport? Probably running or swimming. How's your chess game? Super strong. Come challenge me if you know where to find me. Oh, I love the confidence. If you had to ride tandem with Morton or Howes, who would you choose? Probably Howes because I think Lachlan would want to go on like a 12-hour tandem ride. So probably Howes. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, from at AE Service Course. What's up, Matt? This is uh, Nielsen's local hometown mechanic. Favorite Rigo story? Ordering us pizza and beer when we were in Italy because the hotel food was so bad. And he just happens to know somebody in whatever city we're in in the entire world that can just go and deliver food for him. So uh, he was like, oh, this hotel food's bad. I'm just going to call my friend that lives down the street. And we're just like, we're in the middle of like some random small city in Italy. Like, how do you know someone here? But he had pizzas and beers delivered. Yeah. It's also just a showcase of like the teammate he is because he's just like, oh, the guys need better food than this. I'm going to order and pay for all this food for them. I love that. I loved his reels post that he just put up changing his baby and the baby's moving around all over the place. Did you see that? Yeah. He's like, I don't care. I'm going to change this diaper no matter what you do. Oh man. It's like, that's my son Cruz. He is the hardest baby to change. It is horrible. And I love that Rigo gave the baby like something to play with and did all the distractions. Oh my gosh, dude. It just, it's hilarious. Okay. So I have a question for myself that I'm inserting into this. Do you guys drink alcohol ever when you're on a major tour? Like at night, will you have some wine? Are you doing Jaeger bombs? What's happening? (laughs) Yeah, not, not too much alcohol. If we win a stage, you get champagne and beer, whatever you want. But if you don't win, typically kind of stick, like stay away from it. I mean, it's just, you can order some if you really want to from the hotel, but typically guys will only really drink and like celebratory, at least during the race. That's cool. That's a good rule of thumb for that. Okay, next question. At Zen and the art of the nail. (laughs) How do you balance racing life in Europe with home life in the US? Well, I'm very lucky that my wife comes to Europe with me when I race in Europe. So last year, she was with me in Europe all year, which was amazing. She's my biggest supporter. We only got married. We just celebrated our one year anniversary. So our first year in marriage was filled with a lot of traveling and new things. But yeah, I mean, I'm really lucky that my wife gets to come to Europe with me when I race. Yeah, shout out to Francis. And she has a really great blog, very cultured, great taste. If you want to see what their (laughs) uh, European life is like, go check that out. Uh, So this person also has one more question. Is doping still an issue in the Peloton or is it now in the distant past? To me, it does feel like it's in the distant past. I think there's always guys that are going to try and push the envelope a little bit with like, I don't know, maybe you'd hear about some like new painkiller or something that someone's trying to take. But the benefits that you get from that are nowadays are so small because I feel like for the most part, as soon as somebody starts doing something that improves their performance by however much, they're going to catch it in the blood tests that you do so frequently. Because the UCI, the governing body, keeps track of your blood values throughout the year and throughout your entire career. So from when I was 17, they already have blood values from back then that they can compare to now. So that if anything is too skewed, then it like it basically sends a red flag and then they test you for whatever they think could be changing that value and you get investigated. So the test like it's just very strict nowadays and I don't I don't see how anybody could find something to 
impacts the performance that much. That's a sub, like any kind of substance. Like it's just, I don't, I don't know how you could do it nowadays. <laughs> Interesting. That's crazy. They take it from that young. And it seems like a great barrier to, yeah, trying to <laughs> try and use something like later in your career, because obviously if it doesn't line up yeah. with your genetics, <laughs> then it's a easy red flag. And also I've wondered, I know that a lot of riding data is private, but there's so much data now and so many numbers. I feel like it would be easier for people to see something that just doesn't look quite right. You know, they call it the biological passport. Like you essentially have a biological passport that the governing body keeps track of that has all your blood values. That's cool. Okay. Next question. We got three more from David Avery bikes. What was your favorite race as a junior in NorCal? I mean, the Folsom Lake NorCal race. I mean, that's just like, it's a home race. It starts and finishes at Granite Bay Beach. And that was always just like such a cool event because it's down the street from my house where I grew up and yeah, just grew up training on those courses. So that was my favorite event for sure. Is that mountain or road? Mountain. Mountain. Yeah. That Okay. So for people listening, NorCal, Northern California, Folsom Lake, which Nielsen is talking about is literally one mile behind my studio. I just rode those trails right there and they're awesome for an XC bike. So that's super cool. Okay. Next question at jam, Bob mad pants. <laughs> Have you ever had to overcome any niggling positional imbalances on the bike? Yeah. A few years ago, uh, it was when I switched from speed play to Shimano cleats. I had a issue with my right knee because things just weren't quite set up properly. So I ended up having to take about two weeks off getting a bike fit and had my cleats really looked at before I could start riding again to make sure everything was tracking properly. And it had, luckily it went away and never became a serious issue, but it was scary when I was going through it. Wow. So you swapped the cleats, started riding, noticed the pain, and then you took time off, got a bike fit with the new cleats, and then you were fine. Yeah. It got to the point where at first it was like just a little bit of a, a twinge and then it got really inflamed. Like my right knee was really big Yikes. and red and painful to bend at all. And I had to take time off, just kept icing it. And then it just essentially just came down to a bike fit problem. That's crazy. I'm always amazed at how a little tweak like that on the bike can have such an impact, but it does make sense with the amount of quote unquote reps you do in, in pedaling. Yeah. So same person, one more question. What was the most challenging in your game to take to the next level, to take you to the next level? I think it's just staying consistent. I mean, it's it's hard to like, if you're having a stream of bad races to keep like having having faith that things will turn around, but you just have to keep yeah. staying consistent with things and um, just keep controlling the things that you can control, doing well in those things. And eventually they'll come around because you can't always predict everything going to happen to you. So you just have to roll with the punches a bit and just try to stay consistent with what you can control. Dude, that's just like our goal setting episode, which is the previous podcast, but it's, you, you get that in destination point that you're, you're going towards. It's a kind of a moving target, but all you have to focus on is the next step. You know why you're doing it and it's to reach that goal, but you have to just take the next step of what's in front of you. Because like you said, you can't always plan for how things are going to pan out. So that's awesome. Okay, last question. This is from Nathan, proud Dialed fan member. This dude is rad. So it's at California underscore bear underscore adventure. He says, mm -hmm. this is a perfect one to end on. So he wrote to me and said, Nielsen said Strava NorCal, said on Strava that NorCal has some of the best roads in the world. Can you go into a little more detail and tell us why he thinks that is? Just the diversity, the road choices, um, the cafes in NorCal are amazing, like the pit stops, like... I'm never going to find a waffle breakfast sandwich anywhere else in the world. I mean, that should be enough. <laughs> yeah, just the climbs are amazing. You can get a feeling of escape when you get out into the mountains. The pit stops are great. Yeah, it's just the roads are smooth. 
Nice. That's awesome. And I will say I haven't ridden all over the world like Nielsen, but it is incredible. Like these roads are so much fun. And I would have never thought that I'd enjoy them like I do now coming from the racing that I did. It's just, it's so cool. The amount of wine country that we have and just rolling terrain, uh, the options for riding flat terrain or going up into the mountains to bigger climbs. It really feels like we have everything, not to mention really good weather year round to access it. So yeah, I couldn't second that more, man. And it's, it's cool for me to not take it for granted because when you say that there's some of the best you know, roads in the world. I believe you <laughs> because you've ridden everywhere. So thanks for backing that up. Yeah. Well, Nielsen, dude, I really appreciate the time today. It's been awesome going into this stuff. And this is one of those reasons I'm so grateful for the podcast because uh, I, I know we get to talk, but it's, yeah, it's hard to talk on a ride and go into this much detail. Uh, it was also fun to do a little research and make sure I didn't forget any questions I wanted to ask. So thanks for being game to answer anything and to dive this in and, and for your time. Is there anything you want to plug? Instagram handle, website, anything you want people to go and see? Kind of pimp yourself out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I guess most of my updates are just kind of on Instagram. And honestly, my wife, Francis, she keeps people updated much better than I do. So if you want to keep up with where we're at in the world or what races I'm doing, typically she is posting on her Instagram, Francis Paulus. So yeah, I guess that's the spot. Right on. Yeah, you know that someone's a real fan and they want to keep tabs when they follow the wife. You know, I mean, hopefully it's yeah. not, not creepy, but I always tell people, if you want to see yeah, my kids, yeah. follow my wife. It, way better kid content. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> same thing. <laughs> So you guys heard it. Go follow Nielsen. Go follow Francis and follow him next year as he races. And you just signed on a couple more years with EF, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just signed another three years with them. So really happy with that. Dude, congrats on that. That's incredible. Looking forward to this next season. And also, I'm really looking forward to ever seeing with you in just a couple weeks. Oh, yeah, man. We're going to get after it. It's on. By the way, and I, I'll just leave this live on air. I reached out to a few people and tried to be like, you know, ask them, hey, let's go Everest. Let's do this. And no one is down like you're down. We might have maybe someone <laughs> else, but for okay. people listening, I want to do this Everest ride as a training ride for the DH Vert Challenge that's upcoming later in the year. We're doing this on January 3rd on probably the best climb that's close to home locally. And honestly, Nielsen, if you could find a better climb in you know the foothills or maybe not higher elevation than Auburn, which is like one to 2,000 feet for people who aren't local, let me know. I'm really curious. But I think this is one of the best climbs. It's definitely not a world record climb potential, but it's an average of 9%. It's only 250 feet vert and but it's super wide good run out you don't have to hit your brakes on the downhill 50 mile per hour downhill my parents also live at the bottom of the hill my dad's going to give us some rider support which is going to be really cool uh so long story short i'm like this is perfect perfect training ride i want to go everest on it it's 115 laps which is insane and when i brought it up to nielsen he seemed genuinely excited and he's down to do it which is rad because you're the, about the only other person i can think of that really wants to so looking forward to it man <laughs> yeah, well, I'm feeling left out. I haven't done it yet, so this will be my first attempt. Oh, sick. Okay, cool. I'm Otter, man. It's on. Well, I'll see you soon for Everstay. Right on. Sounds good, man. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks.